Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin podcast. My name is Matt Brusky, and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. Our panel is like Jennifer F. Addison this week. She is traveling as we speak to New York City. Another busy week for Jen. Starting to worry. She's spending a lot of time in New York City. I hope we're, we're not losing our Jen. So hopefully uh, we'll have Jen back next week. However, as always, we have Jorna Taylor. Jorna is a political consultant here in Wisconsin. Jorna. Good morning. Jorna is a little under the weather, so we're really glad Jorna could come in. And of course, Robert Craig, Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Robert. Morning, everyone. So we have a special guest, and we're going to get to that special guest uh, right away, but I want to first just sort of preview what we're going to talk about this week. Well, our special guest is on to talk about Walker's crazy comments about the EPA and uh, trying to get rid of their oversight on air and water and then some of the changes in the DNR. And so we're going to talk about that. We also are going to talk a little bit more about some of the open records and the email uh, link to Walker, a little bit more also about their efforts at Gab, uh, some new research on WEDEC, a little bit on the arena and a little bit on Senator Ron Johnson. But with that, we're going to get right to our first topic and our guest, we are very fortunate to have Jennifer Giegrich. Jennifer is the Legislative Director at Wisconsin League of Conservation Voters. Jennifer, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So the reason we have Jennifer on is, is as I mentioned earlier, this week Governor Walker announced that he wants to all but eliminate essentially the EPA's ability to control air and water pollution and instead allow states to do that. In this case, it would be our DNR. So we're, we have Jen on. Jen, obviously want to get your thoughts on this, but of course, please just for our listeners, give us an overview of, uh, of what Walker's proposing here and its impacts, how it would play out in the state with our DNR. Sure. Well, earlier this week, um, Governor Walker made some comments on the campaign trail that he would, uh, if elected president, would make the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the agency ultimately responsible for protecting our drinking water and making sure our air is, is safe to breathe, he would make that agency um, kind of just an umbrella organization that would just kind of referee states' um, DNRs and essentially turn over the protection of our air and our water to state agencies, and that states would decide for themselves what level of clean air and clean water protections the citizens of their state received. Um, it's a horrible idea for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's not like air or water is protected within the political boundaries of a state. There is no Wisconsin air. There's no Illinois air. So it crosses boundaries, and so you want to make sure that there's consistent protections for our air and water wherever you are in the country. And then the second thing is that, you know, traditionally states have had different approaches to clean air and clean water. Wisconsin historically, you know, before the, the recent time, uh, used to be really strong when it came to protecting air and water, but other states weren't as great. So the U.S. EPA always acted as the floor. So every citizen, wherever you were in the country, got at least basic level protections for air and water, protecting our health that way. And then if states wanted to go above and beyond and be more protective, they would do that. And then once enough states had stronger um, protections for air and water, that's usually when the federal government 
uh, and Congress would change those standards and improve them across the country. But this proposal is pretty dramatic, and it could have a lot of consequences for citizens around the country. But then here in Wisconsin, especially given that DNR hasn't been as um, vigilant for protecting natural resources as we have historically been. Hey, Jennifer, uh, this is Robert. As you know better than I do, I mean, Wisconsin is the place where uh, Senator Gaylord Nelson uh, invented Earth Day, which led to the movement that led to the creation of EPA. Uh, it's, uh, this is like getting rid of Social Security or Medicare, in my opinion. We're repealing the 20th century. But can you remind folks uh, what it was like in the United States before we had um, the, uh, federal environmental protection like the EPA under the EPA? Great reminder, Robert, because as someone who you know was born in the 70s and had my entire life had EPA protecting our air and our water, you forget that there were stories like the Cuyahoga River literally was so polluted it caught on fire. I mean, that is the level of um, protection some citizens had, and that has really been a dramatic uh, example of things that we don't see anymore, and that's because of U.S. EPA. Another thing that um, has been a really big um, change is in an air quality. So we have had a number of very important public health protections um, to limit asthma, um, heart attacks, all um, respiratory illnesses that come from major sources of pollution. And it's the U.S. EPA that made that happen across the country. Well, I think your image of the Cuyahoga River is perfect. So it reminds me of Randy Newman's song, uh, Burn on Big River. But I don't want to be light about this, but I do enjoy Great Lakes Brewing Company's Burning River Ale. Uh, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I remember I lived, I lived in uh, Los Angeles, and the pictures that you used to see of what L.A. looked like in the late 60s and 70s with pollution as opposed to now, not that they've somehow tackled and solved their problems, but I mean, the, the air is completely different and it's, it's hard. I hope our current generation, uh, I think we need to tell these stories so people can understand, you know, just what kind of improvements we've made. And at a time when we are using energy more and more and more, and certainly haven't really shown great um, appetite to curb our energy use. Yeah, that's a great point. I think um, one of the and EPA is really important um, now more than ever because um, we're expecting any day now that for the first time ever we're going the um, United States is going to put limits on carbon pollution. And you know when you talk about the long-term health of this planet, dealing with climate change is the number one natural resource issue that we need to be focused on. And it, you can really, we need an international approach to that, but, but at the very least, we need a national uh, plan. And so that's EPA's um, probably biggest role is yet to come. Jen, thanks for joining us today. This is Jorna. Um, you know, I I'm wondering if this comes as any surprise to you all in the conservation movement when you know, the EPA has gone after the DNR here in Wisconsin, and as Walker continues to privatize the DNR, it would seem that any organization that would be challenging the privatization, I'm sorry, the work <laughs> of the privatization of the DNR uh, would seem par for the course for this administration. Well, there has been a troubling uh, trend of um, polluters getting... Um, 
less than robust uh, attention when it comes to enforcement of environmental laws. You're so um, kind. Oh, well, <laughs> I think one of the biggest issues right now with our DNR, and especially with this new structure that was put up uh, or announced just a, a day ago, is that more and more we are seeing that um, polluters are, are literally being put in positions of um, direct access to the secretary in her office. We basically have a situation where the fox is guarding the hen house, um, and it really begs the question of who polluters in Wisconsin are accountable to. It, it doesn't appear that we are thinking about natural resource protection or thinking about citizens and the quality of life that they have here in Wisconsin. It seems like uh, we have a DNR that's more concerned with rules and regulations and making sure businesses are happy, and, and that is not the, the mission of the DNR. So the polluters are actually more responsible to the corporate interests um, governing the DNR right now. <laughs> Sometimes we get yeah, a little cheeky. It's, it's disturbing. So, hey, you mentioned the changes this week that happened at DNR, and... Uh, conservation groups and environmental groups, uh, the you know across the spectrum, uh, George Meyer and other folks, um, have been very critical of the changes. And by the way, these changes come on the back of massive staffing cuts at the DNR. Could you let our listeners know what that what the key change is that really has folks upset? And I think it's related to what you just talked about. Sure, DNR. Um Basically, in the last probably 10 years, um, DNR is down about 18% of its total staff, they, um, which basically means about 600 or so staff um, less today than we had a decade ago, despite the fact that we have more problems or more areas of concern than we've had in the past. We've got brand new industries like frac sand mining. We've got extremely large uh, industrial farms uh, that are going in and causing water quality and drinking water pollution. So more than ever, DNR needs more staff. And in the last budget, um, we again saw a reduction in staff. This time they went after um, scientists who were dealing with some of the biggest problems we're going to face and figure out how to manage that. So we're already down on the staff. And then in last two days, the DNR just kind of made a surprise announcement. It surprised even their staff. They all found out about it at the same time we found out about it, in that they were consolidating um, different divisions. And now there's going to be one division that deals with anything that the federal government regulates, so air and water and waste in that department, a forestry division, and then a fish, wildlife, and parks division. But then the most interesting, and by interesting I mean disturbing um, change, is that they have a business support and external uh, services division that directs that reports directly to the secretary of the DNR. And within that department or that division, they are putting watershed management. So that's where all the controversial water problems have been. So whether you can build in a wetland, whether large industrial farms can spread manure uh, in places where we have groundwater contamination problems, frac mining issues. Phosphorus issues. All those things now are directly housed, not in the water division, but in the secretary's office. And that begs some serious questions about who those polluters are going to be accountable and how much ability they're going to have to change policies that they may not like. So what should our listeners do 
if they want to help get involved in pushing back against this stuff. I mean, we, we have talked a lot on the podcast that, you know, this is a long-term fight and that uh, obviously progressives are out of power right now, so we're, we're limited in some of the ways we can deal with this. But we need to be really smart about not only what fights we pick, but you know how we choose to get involved with our energies long term. And of course, we think WLCV is really critical in that. So how should folks, if they want to help get involved with WLCV or, or more, more specifically, if there's any other suggestions, get involved in this, uh, this fight? Sure. Well... First of all, I think it's really important to know that there that this is not necessarily a done deal, and so there is a lot of people who should be weighing uh, in. And the first thing that I would encourage folks to do is make sure they're contacting their legislators, and there should be a, a legislative oversight component to this, especially when it deals with protecting water quality. Um, I think the more the legislature uh, or individual legislators can call attention to this, the more that we can get um, a national news story paying attention to this, especially as, as um, Governor Walker is running. I think the rest of the country would want to know exactly how a President Walker may handle natural resource issues. Um, so making sure that we're getting that, that story out is important. Well, we want to thank you for taking the time to join us today and uh, enlighten us on this. And uh, I assume we'll have you on more down the road, Jen. Great. Thanks so much for this. This has been fun. So we, uh, we're we lucky here. We record Thursday morning, and uh, as of this morning, some new research has come out from our friends at One Wisconsin Now Institute. And it's around WEDAC, the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation, which is, as we know, we think a completely failed structure. And uh, this new report is funny, as ironically, and not ironically, it's, it's titled Four Years of Failure. Um, essentially, it's a report that looks at the four years of this organization, and it really details and ties WEDEC award recipients to Walker campaign donors and really looks at these connections, particularly through business owners and employees who are contribute contributing directly to Scott Walker's campaign. Um, we will get into more detail on this next week with uh, the actual researcher, Jenny Dye. Um, but Robert, at least let's, uh, let's give our listeners a quick uh, highlight on some of the key findings of the report. Well, kudos to the, inst the One Wisconsin Institute uh, for doing this report. Uh, it is like shooting fish in a barrel because this is a completely <laughs> flawed model. And our friends at OWN have very good ammunition. So the top lines, and they do a very good job of laying these out in the report, are that um, Walker has received $2.1 million in campaign contributions from uh, WEDEC award recipients or people connected to them, uh, which is, and, and he has in return given out 60% of state economic development grants to uh, companies tied to these contributors. So just to give you an idea, if you dig further into the report, into the kind of return rate on the investment, they gave Walker $2.1 million. Uh, Seven, over 700 million came back in the form of WIDEC grants. So quite a good investment. Someone else can do the percentage on, on what the payback is. Um, that, of course, WIDEC development dollars have not led to the promised job creation. We know that, obviously. Uh, that a majority of WIDEC grants have no job creation retention goals or retention goals. And as we've talked about a lot, and Citizen Action has promoted a lot, uh, the uh, WEDEC continues to, to give funds to outsourcers and even promotes the outsourcers as success stories on its website. So 
enough said, this is devastating. The question is, when are we going to close WEDEC and create a real agency, a real public agency to promote the need for families supporting jobs across Wisconsin? Well, Robert, um, I look forward to reading this actual report because the findings <laughs> will come un not shocking to any of us here <laughs> sitting in the Citizen Action Office right now. Um, but additionally, to not to pile on poor WEDAC. Please do. Uh, uh, you know, earlier this week, it was also uh, discovered by our illustrious Fourth Estate that an additional $1.4 million in public taxpayer dollars and loans that were given out have also been basically defaulted on by companies that Walker has funded through this program. Um, Tomahawk Metals up in northern Wisconsin and North American Finishing have both closed. Uh, one of those, Tomahawk Metals, has settled on the repayment of their loan for less than a third of what they were given. So I really don't see how families are winning in Walker's economic development program here in Wisconsin. Well, Jorna, thank you for summarizing this week in WEDEC. It's been a, another glorious week. It's like we cannot get you can't away. Make this we up. can't get away from the <laughs> subject. I, I swear to God. Okay, so to our listeners, I I get in here usually pretty early on Thursday mornings and try to pull together, you know, discover what we what we're going to talk about. And I try some weeks to avoid this topic, but you can't. It is so fundamental to the corruption of what is going on in this administration. And this model is so failed. We just talked about EPA, right? It's it's just move away from real true transparency and governmental accountability, right? And, and none of this is creating economic opportunity for anyone. So again, we wanna let our listeners know we'll have a link on our website, both to this research, but also to our petition encouraging the closure of WEDEC. And we're not here to defend the old commerce uh, department. We think we need to open an uh, accountable agency, state agency, that actually addresses what we've talked about on this podcast. So in the continuing line of topics of Walker uh, failure, we're going to continue to talk about the lack of open government. It was released in an article yesterday that it, an email was discovered, thanks to open records, of course, <laughs> that showed that Governor Walker was, was directly involved in the drafting of the uh, late and secret efforts in the Joint Finance Committee and the budget to essentially gut our open records laws. I think it's really important to point out in this, before I kick it to others on this, is that when, when uh, the Walker folks were asked for comment on this, they just referred to their previous comments that said he was involved, right? That is the level of openness that you would get if we didn't have open records, right? Even when confronted with this, that's all they're planning on telling us, right? And so it shows the importance of the open records because otherwise that's all you'd get. He was involved and we wouldn't have even gotten that if this stuff hadn't broken in the first place. And we haven't even gotten into gab, Jorna. Well, on the open records thing, again, let's all have a collective... Uh shock face here i mean come on <laughs> he was involved it just it, that that statement demonstrates the um the brashness the boldness of the walker administration to run rampant over government yeah he was involved like nothing to see here move on that's how they command government and you know thankfully they're there was a public outrage over this and it forced them to take a step back and not pass this detrimental policy to you know, public dialogue. Um, but let's, let's all just not be shocked by this anymore. Well, there are two ways to prevent scandals. 
One is not to commit scandals. <laughs> the other on. is to Come make sure that it's nobody politics. can know about it. And so uh, from John Doe to Gab to open records is just stunning. And I, we don't have to make the case that this is outrageous. But let me add, it, it indicates another kind of attitude. They believe that they are the owners of government, not the people. And that attitude's pervasive. They think if they get 50% plus one of the state, the rest of the state doesn't matter. They can do whatever they want. Mine, mine, mine. They're being paid by taxpayers to do the public's business. The, the public has a right to know what they are doing. And by the way, if you've deregulated campaign finance, you can have unlimited multi-million dollar don essentially donations that are unregulated. And then we can't even know how the bill is being drafted and who's influenced it. This is obviously just a cover for bribery. You could make a, uh, a legal case for bribery that has an actual quid pro quo if you have open records. Now we won't even have that. Now we're essentially going back to the, uh, the brown paper bag, uh, directly direct privatization of all government decisions era. And the sh horrible thing about this is actually, this actually aids conservatives because it discredits government and therefore prevents us from doing what we need to do to expand opportunity with government. So in a weird and perverse way, their trashing of government helps their ideology and helps their ends, which are not to do anything to bend the arc of history towards justice. Robert, you don't think this has anything to do with the American Legislative Exchange Council, um, otherwise known as ALEC, and their pervasive... Uh, influence into our state government to not see where bills like this are drafted because they are taken from other states where regressive public policy has been enacted. Another reason I brought this up uh, is I want us to stay on this because I think it's important as progressives. This issue is not going to go away. Um, this week, our attorney general, Mr. Schimmel, held an open government summit, and this was scheduled before the secret push. So there has been an effort, right? There's a real effort underway to change our open records laws. And, you know, there are folks on both sides who suggest there may be some tweaks that need to be made. Unfortunately, you get a situation like this, how do you negotiate with these folks, right? Like, th they've shown such bad faith based on how they put this in the budget. And it wasn't just like one person, it was both the Assembly, the Senate, and Walker. So it really lays bare this idea that we can actually have an open dialogue or a summit and a, a, a reasonable conversation about how we might actually update open records law for the 21st century. Uh, these guys are completely uncredible that I would been, ever even trust them to any changes. Yes, they haven't been open about their opposition to open government. <laughs> yeah. So I, it just, uh, you know, it's just this Schimmel event this week. It, it, the timing of it was, was choice, and I thought it was worth making sure we talk about because I think it's really important that progressives, that we continue to take the mantle of this. This has everybody upset. There was a slew of editorials this week on the Gab stuff. I mean, conservative editorial board saying that Gab is wrong. We've got even Eisner, right? The, the, the Marquette crazy who runs that Institute for Law. He's even <laughs> in there. Eisenberg. Eisenberg. Who, he's even there saying, like, these jokers, this is part of the price of doing business. You need transparency in government, right? Like, so this is across the and board. The, and it's, it's a witch hunt against Gab because Gab dared to aid the John Doe investigation, which, by the way, as we've said repeatedly, was investigating 
clear violations of the law as everyone at the time understood the law. Their only defense is to nullify the law and claim it was unconstitutional retroactively. So I just, we need to keep talking about this. We like, we like to get into our specific issues that we care about deeply. This very simple concept of open government, what, how our democracy is going to function, cuts across um, all sorts of partisan areas, and they're on the wrong side of this, and we need to stay on it and keep exposing it, because they're not going to give up on this. And it's I don't know, continue. maybe the illustrious state Supreme Court can rule open records <laughs> laws unconstitutional. Maybe we can have a, a fine juristic product from uh, Judge Gableman, uh, Mr. Willie, uh, Judge Willie Horton Gableman, who also ordered the destruction of all the John who ordered the destruction of all the John Doe records. That is correct. He did do that. So... We're going to move on. This week, the Assembly passed funding for a Milwaukee Bucks arena. A couple weeks ago, after the Senate passed it, we had Senator Chris Larson on to explain why they, why they supported it. Um, we're not going to get into the details of this. We know it's been well written about. Um, it's been very divisive. Um, both It was a bipartisan, again, in the Assembly, both Republicans and Democrats supporting. But... Um, it's pretty clear that uh, this is was more divisive within the Republic, uh, within the Democratic side, and I think it's uh, very clear most progressives are not supportive of this for all the reasons we've talked about in terms of what went on in the budget and giving, you know, our taxpayer money for billionaires. But it's passed, um, and we're we're at a stage now where it's going to be taken up at the at the city and county. And it's very important as progressives, and I want to get our, our, our panel's comments on this, I think very important that we unify around the fact that we need to make sure that the permanent jobs now that are going to come out of this are good jobs. The Bucks have already are, have been open and are in conversations and are interested in talking about this. The only way it's going to happen, though, if progressives both people who supported and were against the arena actually join up and over the next month, as this moves through the city and county, are unified in being clear to the Bucks that they have to make good on these end use, these, these permanent jobs, jobs for janitors, for food service workers, bartenders, right? That these are paying a living wage. So that's my sort of opinion or, or pitch to, to folks as, as divided as this issue has been, Jorna. Well, I have to say that I'm really excited about the Bucks Arena, and I look forward to the first time I get to fear the deer in the new arena. But I agree, Matt. Really, at this point, the most important thing is to make sure that as we are revitalizing the downtown economy in Milwaukee, that these are good quality family-supporting jobs that are here to stay, which I think that the Bucks owners are committed to, and I know that all of our Milwaukee legislators and the Democratic Caucus is committed to as well. So I look forward to working with all those folks to ensuring that um, outcome. I know a lot of I know a lot of progressives are conflicted about this, and so one of the challenges is that we should be making a lot of investments to revitalize our economy, and this is the only one of the only ones that's possible. So this is sort of what's possible in conservative establishment Wisconsin right now because this cuts across the political establishment, the business establishment, uh, that they at some level want to do this. Uh, so at this point, the question is getting bang for the buck, so to speak, and that is to make sure that we get as many family-supporting jobs as possible. We know that the research shows that sports stadiums don't actually add jobs 
that a lot of it is substitution. Of course, uh, the business interests have overstated the jobs. We know that uh, through this process, we're going to get construction jobs with standards. There was a late at 11th hour attempt to get rid of prevailing wage and to make those not value supporting jobs. Thank which you, Kawabunga. Uh, that was Kapanga. Kawabunga. Uh, which seems to have failed. Uh, so knock on wood. Uh, but as far as the permanent jobs, this has to do with what the Bucks decide to do. And here's the interesting thing. Uh, if you actually have much higher standards than the rest of the community, where there's virtually no standards, even if you move a janitor job or a waitress job from one place to another in the city, if you make it, take, it, take a poverty wage job and make it a family-supporting job, you've actually done something. So there is an opportunity to get public value and real, econ and real economic benefits for average people from this deal, but it's at this last stage. It's not the stage that involved the illustrious State Assembly and State Senate as currently governed and owned. Uh, it has to do with what the bucks do in the city of Milwaukee, and so that's what we're encouraging you to be engaged in. This can be a better and better deal the more actual economic opportunity it creates. So uh, keep, uh, keep paying attention. There's going to certainly be more news and developments out as this moves through the Common Council uh, here in Milwaukee. Um, before we go, we have to talk about our Senator, Ron Johnson, another fantastic week for the senator. He started out the week by calling inner-city Milwaukee kids idiots. Then, you know, he very deftly got out of that little pickle by saying, no, that's not what I meant. I meant that the liberals think they're idiots, which is very clever and daft on his part. Um, and then, of course, um, we have his wonderful ad that was run by a pack course completely not at all connected with the senator and i'm sure he had absolutely nothing to do with it but it does show the kind of friends he hangs out with who actually ran an ad um against obama and the deal in iran which we have talked about a little bit and uh essentially cut him in with the president of iran who he has never met so a completely false ad wonderful week jordan i know i know the senator is a close personal friend of yours <laughs> You guys often go to the jumper uh, shows. He's 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 a horse owner, isn't he? He's regular. He's next to you in the barn. I, I'm not sure when you say <laughs> our senator Ron Johnson. <laughs> I'm not sure who this our this this royal. I we thought he was yours. You are okay. referring to. I, Look, I mean, we could go on and on all day about the gaffes, and I don't even think they're gaffes, right? These mm. are not gaffes coming from Ron Johnson. <laughs> These are actual beliefs. These are um, targeted beliefs that he holds about Milwaukee, and it feeds into, to use a gen word, the dog whistle politics. Absolutely. And this hatred and feeding this um, blatant racism that he has shown time and time again, and this is just another comment in a long line of... Um, we won't call them missteps, but I'm trying to be kind. Yes, from very kind. your senator. Hey, Robert, you might not be as kind. What are, what's your, what are your thoughts? Well, I do think the senator might be known for standing at the <laughs> wrong end of the horse. <laughs> oh, oh, bada boom. Robert will be here all week, <laughs> performing in the office in his cubicle. <laughs> so, Robert Moore. So, I appreciate that Jen met, brought up coded racism. In fact, we'll have a new Progress Points message blog up for people to read about how code racism work. I'll disagree only slightly. I hardly ever disagree with the gentle lady <laughs> from Bayview. But 
It's only coded racism if it's coded. That's you can't. That's going to say so. This is uncoded racism. They didn't racism. fill them in on the coded right. part. And Blatant. so, uh, it, you know, there's some that skirts the line, and then there's some that goes clearly over the line. Uh, which is shown by the fact that he had to immediately deny it and blame the liberals. liberals. This is what liberals think. Oh, thank you for your Because he has thoughtful. the insight of liberals so, so intimately. When it turns out that uh, President Obama has never met with the leader of Iran, even though Ron Johnson's, uh, the ad on behalf of Ron Johnson puts them together, I guess idiot liberals think they've met, <laughs> yes, right? Or right, something exactly. like that. So, and this is a man who is not self-made, who poses as a job creator. Uh, who has had everything in life handed to him, ha at, cares nothing, has no empathy for people who start at the bottom and try to work their way up, and now he wants to call kids, these are children, these are our kids, idiots. And these are kids without, without any of the advantages he had. It's just disgusting. Yeah. And by the way, it goes without saying, his defense of this, even him saying that, is inappropriate, uncalled for, and just like it just shows like a level of of discourse that is way below a senator. So, of course, we will have an opportunity to remove him next year. And again, the elections are just around the corner. Oh, we we will be talking more about those as we go on. So with that, um, Robert, I know you have some birthday news that you want to tell us about. You were at a, a, a birthday party last night. Is that correct? It is. And so you'll be hearing this podcast the day after the 50th birthday of Medicare and Medicaid. Woohoo! Hey, oh, you know, Robert's got a little cake on his lip there he left on from last mm. night. He did, must not the have shower, showered this morning. Going off. Yes. So, yes, it was a great event in Madison uh, that I spoke at. So, look, it's really important to us to take stock how important both of these programs were. Uh, before Medicare, only 25% of seniors had uh, comprehensive health insurance. Uh, the reason is, is that they don't have jobs, they don't have employer-based coverage, uh, and they, they have less money, and they're expensive to insure, because guess what? They have health conditions, and the insurance companies wouldn't provide them with affordable coverage. And so guess what? Our Democrat government had to step in. Same with Medicaid. If you're very poor, you don't have a job that provides you with good health care, where else do you have to go? And so it's amazing. There are over 2 million people in these programs in Wisconsin. We, rele we're re we released yesterday, uh, when, uh, today, but yesterday when you're hearing this, um, a, a list of each county in the state and how many people are benefiting. We take it for granted they've been so successful that we think it's just natural. We don't understand that before this happened, literally to be old was not to have health insurance and to have your life savings drained away as soon as you had a major illness period. But Robert... They had freedom back then. They had the freedom to choose their own health plan or not to have one. Well, it's great you say that because I think freedom is having somewhere to go to get affordable health care no matter what. And the AMA went all out and assaulted this. There was a huge lobbying campaign. from forget, People forget this. The AMA, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the major insurers, the pharmaceutical companies, only the hospitals split off. Ronald Reagan did ads for the AMA saying it would bring on socialism if we had Medicare. Now we're building monuments to this man, right? And so the Affordable Care Act was an extension of the idea that there are a lot of other people who have nowhere to go to get affordable health care if you don't provide it. People with pre-existing conditions, people who don't have a large employer, like farmers, self-employed people, consultants, people who work for small businesses where only a third can provide coverage. And the, the, today's modern right wants to repeal that and roll that back, and that's what Governor Walker is running on. And, uh, and only the entire field to save, from jo save John Kasich 
in the Republican primary seems to want to completely <laughs> gut it and roll it back. So on this day, remember how hard it was to get Medicare and Medicaid, how much a part of the fabric of America they are right now because we as a democracy decide to do it, and how much further there is to go in order to guarantee that people can control their own health care decisions. The AMA said that this eviscerated your control of, health, of your health care decisions and was the biggest attack, this is Medicare, on the medical profession ever. Well, guess what? It's been a massive funding source for, the for generations of doctors and other medical professionals and has guaranteed that, uh, that seniors actually get to go and see doctors and other medical professionals. So the reason why, obviously, Robert, I made that joke about freedom is because that is the arguments you're going to hear in the, as we head into this election cycle and they go after the Affordable Care Act, right? It is going to be one of the defining issues in the presidential campaign. Walker is as much said. He'll repeal it on day one while he's um, bombing Iran. And uh, so it's very important because it was almost laughable when I would say that, you know, seniors had freedom, right? right. But those are the same arguments we're yes. going to hear that they're going to be offering people freedom and choice um, if they win. And, and Paul Ryan has a plan to, to gut Medicare. Just how naked those arguments are, but that is sort of the value argument we're in, and we need to win it. And it's sort of a, I think, Robert, your birthday party is uh, not only a testament to what we ought to be doing, but it's a prelude to what the fight and, is going forward. And we just need to be clearer about this so they're visible. We have Tea Party people, and these are the idiots, right? Uh, having with signs, keep the government out of my Medicare. Okay, really? There'd be no Medicare without a government. And by the way, the greatest thing this country did initially was create the, fir the first large-scale democracy. It could do something 150 years yet later, like Medicare. Okay, so the incoherence of the ideology of the right is breathtaking. So, Robert, you celebrating birthday parties on a Wednesday evening. What are you doing this weekend? It's furlough time. Well, I am going to Eagle River. I won a house and cabin in the silent auction of my uh, nephew Emerson's uh, school, French Immersion School. And so there'll be three generations coming along, uh, my brother and his family, including my little nephews, and then my, uh, my mother will, will be coming. So I'm trying to get a lot of work done this week, so I don't have to do a lot of work up there, but it, that's becoming harder and harder due to external factors beyond our control. Well, you know, that actually sounds like a good little uh, reality series, a, a weekend with three generations of Craigs. I know Jorna's very interested. I, Jorna, what are you doing this weekend when you're not filming the, uh, the Craig family? <laughs> um... <laughs> I will, uh, I'm actually going to have a pretty easy, chill weekend, but I am looking forward uh, on Saturday to going to uh, New Walkies Urban Island Beach Party, riding my bike down there, having some beer, hanging out with my fellow Milwaukeeans, and enjoying my favorite city. Well, that sounds great. And again, we appreciate you coming in, even though you're feeling under the weather this week. Um, this weekend, I will be at the Door County Fair, oh, which is one of my favorite yes. things to do every year. We, of course, have a race where the, uh, my son, both my sons are racing this week. Um, we're the headlining Grandstand Entertainment on Saturday night. So if you're in the Door County area, I highly recommend you come out. Um, the Door County Fair is a wonderful little fair. Uh, it is incredibly affordable for $10. You can ride the rides all night long. So bring your kids. It's, a, it's an excellent uh, uh, event. We look forward to it, bringing my whole family up and spend a lot of time at the fair. And Jeff and Jerry Taylor, yeah. I know you listen to the podcast now, so go see Matt. Come on down. Come on and watch some son. 
motorcycle racing, and uh, of course, visit the fair. It's always good to support these county fairs, which we're in the hot and heavy season for fairs. Fairs, fairs, fairs. and we got the state fair coming up in a couple weeks. So with that, we hope uh, Gen Epps travel safely. We want to thank uh, Jen Giegrich from Wisconsin League of Conservation Voters for joining us, and uh, we'll have links to their uh, where you can connect up with them on our uh, Facebook page. And of course, we always want to thank Brian Woldridge, thank who makes Brian. every podcast happen. Thank you, Brian. And we'll see everybody next week here at the Battleground, Wisconsin. <laughs>